Welcome to the Substack Podcast, where we have conversations with great writers who have earned their independence. I'm here with Nathan Bashaw and Hamish McKenzie, who's talked to a very exciting writer this week. Hamish, who did you get to talk to? This week, Chris, I spoke to Anne Friedman, who is a freelance journalist and host of a really popular podcast called Call Your Girlfriend. What does she want you to call her? <laughs> I believe uh, Robin would be an acceptable one because that's the name of the singer who who wrote that song, and uh, it's a great song and it's a great podcast. And Anne has had a really uh, interesting career where she was from a young age uh, kind of thrust in this uh, important role as a magazine editor that uh, was for a magazine called Good, and it kind of didn't work out the way she hoped. But there's an interesting backstory there. We talk about it in this episode. She has been a long-form journalist writing for various magazines. She's even got a paid newsletter, which is uh, very important to us here at Substack. (laughs) Subject close to our heart. Yeah, exactly. Did she have any tips or tricks for fellow uh, paid newsletter operators? She's got lots of tips for fellow uh, paid newsletter operators, as you so succinctly put it. She, uh, I think the thing that resonated most with me was that she said that writers uh, who are in positions like hers should think of themselves as like a business. And that helps take away some of the like icky sort of self-promotional marketing stuff that some writers get caught up in. So how do you do that? I think that's something that you have to listen to and to find out about. And uh, we've got a good hour of conversation on that very subject. So enjoy. Let's roll the tape. Yeah, roll it. Anne Friedman, thank you very much for uh, coming on the Substack uh, podcast. Thanks for uh, having me. Um, well, I've, I've heard you say that you've only ever wanted to do one thing your entire life, and that is to be a journalist. Uh, why is that? <laughs> I mean, uh, I love words. Um, the written word, but also, you know, I'm discovering more and more the the spoken word. <laughs> um, I am also extremely nosy, and I love talking to strangers and asking them questions about their lives and about their businesses and um, about what they think about the world. So that's a great quality. If you um, you know, if you think about how to parlay that into a job, journalism is pretty obvious, and. Uh, I also have a lot of opinions. I could, I really feel like um, as a as a kid, you know, my mother would be really annoyed. Why, why do you Why do you have an opinion on everything? Why do you feel the need to tell us what you think about everything? And um, that has sustained me through certain periods of my career. So I think it's a it's a combination of all of all that stuff. So those dreams you had as a kid, growing up, thinking about wanting to communicate your opinions to the world, has that panned out? Has Has journalism been the career you hoped it would be? Well, when I was younger, I mean, I, I went to journalism school and for a long time thought I was going to be a newspaper reporter. Um, and so I would say in that moment, it was more like my opinions were, you know, a facet of my personality or something that was just, you know, for better or worse, something you got if you were my friend or family member, not something <laughs> that I really integrated into my career. My career was more the kind of curiosity about listening to other people, asking questions, and my love for the written word. And I did not see those two things as complementary or connected. Um, and it was only after realizing I did not want to work in a newspaper newsroom or like be that kind of beat reporter um, that I really realized, I mean, probably around like my first years out of college that, um, you know, the things that I have a point of view on that were not 
appropriate for the pages of a newspaper could actually strengthen the work that I was doing in a magazine or like then quickly in a digital context. Right. Is there anything specific that gave you that realization that you you didn't want to just be uh, another voice among many as a beat reporter? I mean, it wasn't about feeling like I really needed to use my voice or that I didn't want to be a voice among many. I mean, I had an experience. I was a reporting intern at the Des Moines Register one summer when I was still in college. And I wrote this feature that was about um, family considering an adoption and whatever. It's it's not important what the story was, but I I thought that there was a real narrative arc to it. I, I did not want to write it as a straight news story because as a straight news story, family considers adoption is not news. Um, And it was one of the first things that I was getting to write that was more of a reported feature. And um, I worked really hard on it. I stayed late and I opened the paper the next day and they just lopped off the last three or four paragraphs because it didn't fit. And, you know, like, and, and this is, of course, spoiled journalism school perspective of, you know, stories with a real narrative arc. And even though it's reported, it's got a beginning, middle and end. And it's really, you know, like mm-hmm. I was I was really trying to, like, live up to the best of my of what I what I thought my career would be. And then I was like, oh, wow, it's just it's just been, you know, no one is doing a careful like trim to make this still, you know, fit and retain its narrative power it's just been squeezed into the newspaper and I think at that point um I had already disliked doing certain things like calling grieving family members after a car accident or something like that Mm -hmm. which is part of the job for being a a news reporter that I that I disliked and this was I mean I don't want to say it was like a final straw because I didn't really see a path forward in magazines but it was something that really was like oh god this is not going to be the um you know, collections of 1960s narrative nonfiction career that I really hoped it was going to be. <laughs> yeah. Right. And and you've jumped around a little bit. I mean, your career has gone through from Mother Jones, I, I think, to Alternate, to Feministing, to The American Prospect. Um, and eventually you ended up at Good, uh, although it wasn't that eventually. This all happened pretty quickly and uh, early in your career, I think. But... Uh, uh, what was it that you took from those uh, early reporting and journalism jobs that uh, got you to where you ultimately wanted to be, which I think you might have started heading in that direction when you got to good? Yeah, I mean, I I think that it was, it's always been important for me to think of myself as a reporter as well as an opinion writer or a reporter as well as a podcaster or a reporter as well as an editor. I think that those skills about asking questions and thinking about um, a diverse group of stakeholders on any given topic or assignment, like uh, those kind of 101 things I learned in journalism school have really really seen me through um, a lot of different phases of my career. And um, you know, I, I'm not sure that I viewed it this way when I was starting out, but now certainly I kind of think about um, what I said to you at the, to your very first question of like, I like words, I like, you know, getting people's stories, I like being curious about them, and I like expressing an opinion, you know, those are the kind of driving forces of um, 
everything that I've been lucky enough to do. And so I think that it's more of a question of the specific skill set that's needed to like to bring that to life. So, you know, editing is a different skill set from column writing, which is a different skill set from fact checking, which is a different skill set from podcasting. And at some point in time, um, you know, all of all of those things have been, you know, maybe the top line description of what I do, even though they're underpinned by this other stuff. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you're asking if that was part of the plan because it certainly wasn't. I Mm. think that I've never identified with people who have a five or 10 year plan. Mm. Um, it's, it's really, I I'm really good at thinking about like what seems like a fun next challenge and maybe, maybe being oriented in like an, a year, possibly in a year or two years. But you know, I was definitely not graduating journalism school and thinking about how I could have a multi-phased career in different types of media. Right, and then but then you got um, you you ended up in this pretty amazing job as the executive editor of Good Magazine, which was kind of um, a high production value print magazine with a strong digital presence that published uh, terrific long form journalism, had a really talented team, uh, but was also funded by uh, kind of I think uh, we can call them uh, rich startup bros. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, you may yeah, describe I mean, them, I would, right? I would say, yeah, people who inherited money, but had a kind of like faux tech bootstrappy mentality, um, which was a, a really toxic combination. <laughs> I think that exists as a funding model across journalism now, by the way, like it's not the only place that exhibited those traits, but yeah, yes, that it, is, that is the case. It was a pioneer of the form. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I actually just want to know like how you got that job and how does you feel when you got that job? Um, I got that job because um, my friend Cord Jefferson, who I knew from my working in D.C., um, we did not work together, but he, we were both journalists there, had taken a job at, at Good. And when they were on the hunt for a new um, executive editor, he dropped my name. And then another um, editor pal of mine who... Uh, I did not ever kind of like live in the same town in as or hang out with, but someone I'd long respected and known professionally, uh, Doug McGray, who now who founded California Sunday Magazine and Pop Up. Mm. Both of them independently mentioned my name for this job. So um, shout out to the men who have boosted me in my career, <laughs> <laughs> the the few, the proud, um, and and I think that um, you know I. I was excited to take this job because I had been a deputy editor um, at the American Prospect for several years, and I was just shy of 30 years old and felt like I'd kind of maxed out on that. I didn't want to move to New York because I didn't want to live in New York. And the number of kind of step up from deputy editor magazine jobs, not in New York City. I mean, it's a small, short list. So I got very lucky to know... um, a few people who supported my career who happened to know about this job opening and they put forth my name and I interviewed and was hired. Yeah. And, and it sounds like, uh, at that time you were pretty happy about that happening. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's an incredible, um, I mean, it was also very scary, but it's an incredible, uh, job to be able to be, um, given some hiring power, like, you know, to sort of, to be able to select your peers who you think are doing incredible work as reporters and editors and um, be the one with the agency to say, I want to work with these people and, and build a team. And then also, you know, being able to assign things. I mean, I was just joking to a friend yesterday that my true G- dream job and kind of like 
like a sci-fi speculative way is that I'm the world's editor and I get to just assign everyone who's making media like what I want to see happen in the world. I don't have to see it through. I don't have to do the hard work. I just have to say like, you know, I want you to write a book on, you know, higher education, but from this angle. And I want you to write an article explaining to me about this thing happening with, you know, homelessness in LA. And I want you, you know, like I would just love like to wave a wand and do that. So, you know, being an executive editor is very much that sort of saying, okay, like, what do I want this publication to do in the world? What articles do I want to exist in the world? What people do I want to have money to make and write great things? And just like putting all those pieces together. Um, And I still think that it is, uh, it is in many ways, um, still a dream job. I mean, it is also, and you know, I was like, going gray and uh mm-hmm. <laughs> and like eating only trader joe's trail mix two meals a day but it mm-hmm. was a great job um on 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 the on, on paper i should say like in in terms of what i was what i was hired to do and what i was meant to be doing yeah and that's interesting because at the time this good magazine uh seemed like this bright spot in a universe where magazines uh didn't look like they had great futures economically but here here was a team of people who had the economic wherewithal to fund this um, high quality magazine and here was a great opportunity to go and run something like that and and the reason I'm setting it up like that is because ultimately it didn't work out things started to go badly um, and I was wondering if you could kind of like talk us through uh, what happens and when things started to go wrong I mean they started to go wrong pretty quickly because I think that um you know, and this is something I've I've written about before as well. The realities of um, investing in a publication or investing in media is that um, not every day looks like the best day. Not every high quality thing that you do is going to be the highest traffic thing that you do. There is not a one to one correlation, mm-hmm. and um, and I think that if you're someone who uh, wants to see hockey stick growth, you know, of like, okay, we, we seem to be kind of plateauing for a while, but now we're going to hire this team and it's going to be whoo, like a real, you know, immediately like we're, we're cranking out hits and we're at the top. Um, that's just not, that's just not the way the world works. If you want to see growth like that, like, you know, there are other ways, maybe if you're doing a business or you're, you have some kind of, um, platform that's based around, virality and not quality um Mm -hmm. like i think that there are ways you can get to a really astonishing and sexy speed of growth um in terms of money and um, eyeballs on what you're doing but uh reported journalism is not that (laughs) and so so really it's um you know for anyone who is impatient um people with uh a lot of money and um and without a lot of experience in the hard slow work of building something um, the kind of short attention span factor of extreme wealth plus um, like a tech mentality of like you've got to be growing exponentially at all times otherwise it's not a success uh, is a formula for a lot of frustration <laughs> when you're put up against editors who do have a more long-range view of like okay like we can kind of see how even if this article didn't get millions of page views. It is an important thing that we've published because this work is out in the world, because it contributes to our name and our standing as like a quality outlet. It will help us gain standing with people we want to interview, with people we want to write for us and design for us and take photos for us and all of that. Um, And that just, that kind of view of money and success was not 
shared by the people who were my bosses. And I think that that became apparent immediately, you know, to your question of when did I realize that was apparent very quickly. Um, but also, I don't think there are many ownership structures in media where that that conflict does not exist. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's why the kind of old school model of um, newspapers or magazines as a family business owned mm -hmm. by rich people who are content to, if not lose money, just kind of, you know, break even year over year is, uh, is, you know, RIP that model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And well, uh, on the rich people owning things front, uh, so what do you think of, uh, of Jeff Bezos? You Bez mean capitalism? <laughs> on the capitalism front. On, on the capitalism front. <laughs> uh, Jeff, uh. Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post, uh, brought it off the grams. It's um, now, uh, you know, a, 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 billion, a, a single person owned entity, which kind of fits that model you want where independence is protected to some extent by someone's willingness to lose a lot of money in the service of something uh, of a greater good. But does that sit comfortably with you in this era when um, it was slightly different in the past? I mean, I, I don't know about sitting comfortably. I think that I, I've never been someone who is like a wide-eyed, I wish all of media were like this. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just a reality. And like I said, it's rooted in a lot of history, especially in terms of large newspaper ownership. And, um, you know, I mean, I... I obviously have as many dystopian misgivings about Jeff Bezos and about Amazon as the next person who reads the news. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I feel like I'm fairly realistic about um, like the options for mm -hmm. doing the kind of journalism that the Washington Post does. And so, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm always very interested to speak to friends who work there and to to pay attention to how they um, handle that as a conflict of interest. But I mean, I think it's, it's kind of pointless whether or not I think it's good. I mean, it is. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's, and it's also a little different in this case. Um, you know, I mean, here's an owner who has like a lot of other big businesses to run. Whereas in my case, I was working for, um, you know, a millionaire who did, did not make that money from, you know, a business he created and who was not busy running that other business, like could, could really just like focus in on meddling, <laughs> meddling and like having lots of opinions on like the editorial side of what we were up to, which again is, is probably not so much the case with the post and with Jeff Bezos. So I think it's mm -hmm. all, um, yeah, it is. Sorry, sorry not to take a strong, like alarmist or like pleased stance on it, but I just, it's the way it's going to be. Uh, yeah, we're quite happy to not have alarmism here on the Substack podcast. Uh, measured yeah. <laughs> measured reasonable, reasonableness is the way to go. Um, but, okay, so when things uh, were coming to an end at Good Magazine, um, what, you know, how did you get that message and how did you feel as you heard it? And then, I know, sorry for the three-part question, but was there anything you resolved to do or not to do in, a, in the future as a result of that happening? Um, so you're talking about finding out we were all being fired, right? Exactly, right. So the whole team, actually, for background for the listeners, Good ended up uh, folding. They, they they fired the whole editorial team and pivoted to a community platform type of deal where people could upvote things, uh, stories that were shared and created by other publications. 
or or by like just users right and then and then another couple of years in they pivoted back to being a magazine and i don't know i don't i'm uh. it's basically not just pivots it's like a pirouette at this point like a constant spinning top situation <laughs> um yeah they have gone on to hire other groups of journalists who i know and respect and then also let them go or kind of force them out it's been a real cyclical situation mm -hmm. so i mean the answer is i did not i felt some degree of relief um I was, uh, in terms of my own personal role there, because it had become very apparent that it was going to be, I mean, look, it's hard to edit a magazine under normal circumstances, but mm -hmm. it was increasingly very difficult. As I mentioned, two meals a day of Trader Joe's trail mix does not make you like a mm -hmm. well-rounded, happy person. Mm -hmm. um, and I've only recently gone back to Trader Joe's nuts after like five years. I really <laughs> ate myself sick. Um, so, so I think on a personal level, I was a little bit relieved because I, um, I felt a large obligation, especially to the people who I had convinced to move from the East Coast to Los Angeles to take this job. You know, Los Angeles was and remains a place where there are not a ton of um, writing and reporting jobs. And so, you know, on a personal level, I was like, I'm really happy that I don't have to personally decide whether to abandon this project and leave these people in the hands of a different editor who will probably be picked by my bosses and will probably not share the journalistic values that they share. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, I was like, oh my God, now all these people are gonna have to find jobs too because we were all let go collectively. And so very quickly, that became my first concern. Um, just being able to support the people I had worked with in finding a new job. Um, mm -hmm. And we, uh, we decided um, pretty shortly after we were all fired, we found out we were all being fired at an issue release party, <laughs> oh. um, which was great because there was some alcohol being consumed to soften the blow, but also, um, you know, uh, I guess good to find out outside of the office. Um, so maybe it was only 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 upsides to being being told there. <laughs> it was purely strategic. Confirmed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we were officially fired the next morning, which um, you know, but but um, but in terms of fit, figuring out what was happening, it was at this party. Um, anyway, we were sitting around and chatting about what to do with the um, you know what has become now the customary blip of press that you get within media circles when your whole team is laid off, like after mm -hmm. a mass round of layoffs. Or um, I really I really take pains to say firing because I want it to be clear that um, the media side of that business was making money, was turning a profit. It was not like we're losing mm. money, we need to lay you off. It was we want to switch direction, which to me is like that is not a layoff in the sense that most media people experience it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, so we were sitting around and decided that we would rather take this opportunity when people within our industry were focused on us to uh, talk about the good and interesting work we were doing and had done, as opposed to talking about pretty much everything I just said to you about the internal mechanics of working mm -hmm. at this dysfunctional place. And so, um, we also had a bunch of stories that were in some stage of development and we had uh, um, some writers who we had been wanting to work with and designers and so we decided to make a single issue of a new magazine to kind of push that work out into the world to do one last thing together and um, you know for some of us to use it as a um, a physical CV. So like, for example, um, uh. some someone who had been an editorial assistant, Zach Stone, who's an incredible editor now, um, was 
like just starting to edit his first stories. And it's like, okay, well, wouldn't it be great if you could hold this up and be like, I was one of the lead editors on this project, as opposed to kind of saying I spent two years as an editorial assistant. And so that was Mm -hmm. part of the idea as well, like a last ditch effort to rev up everyone's CV um, Mm. in advance of this job search we were all going to be headed out on. Right, and that was Tomorrow Magazine, and you indeed uh, you crowdfunded it. You raised uh, thirty thousand dollars on that uh, on Kickstarter for that. Is that is that right? We did, and we raised a few. We raised some money from sponsors, um, mostly. Uh, I mean, th- that was that covered expenses and and stipends for the contributors. Um, those of us who who were part of the good team, um, who were editing and kind of putting it together also made small stipends ourselves. It was like not nearly enough to cover the hours that we put in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ultimately think it was a more productive way to spend, um, you know, an, a moment of sudden unemployment than just trolling job boards. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we did, yeah, it was It was really, I, I, I do feel like I need to point that out because it's not, if we had wanted to say Make Tomorrow Magazine a publication that was, running for the foreseeable future, not just this single issue, um, best kind of gimmick publication. Mm -hmm. It would have required so much more money than what we raised. I mean, we really just covered the hard costs so that none of us lost money. We just lost the hours we put in. And I think that that's really important when talking about um, this project in the context of crowdfunded journalism, because it is, it was, perfect for what it was and it served the goals that we had for it it was not sustainable as a business Mm -hmm. does that mean you're not a believer in the crowdfunded model for journalism i mean i think that uh for something that is as big as a magazine with you know a dozen contributors and a half dozen editors or designers i mean i no, <laughs> I don't. No, I'm not a believer in that as a, as a sole method. I mean, I think that um, I'm interested in it as um, a community engagement tool. I'm interested in it as something that can help boost a special project. I mean, I think that, again, this this Tomorrow Magazine is more in the category of special project than it is in the category of business. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and it, and it can, it can work in, in conjunction with, or in support of other funding models, but I, I don't really see it as a viable, um, funding model for most, most ambitious, you know, journalism efforts. Right. Okay. Fair cool. So after Tomorrow Magazine came out, uh, you did, you've done a lot of things. You've done various things like, uh, writing for the New York uh, New York Magazine, LA Times. Um, you've got the podcast. Um, and, and by the way, I think we're talking about 2012 by the time you did this uh, uh, single issue magazine. Is that right? Yeah. So we were we were all fired in June of 2012. And Tomorrow Magazine came out in October of 2012, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that point, uh, by the time it came out, I had started writing this weekly column for New York Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of my colleagues had been um, hired elsewhere already. Right, okay. And at some point, and this is a question that is very dear to the heart of uh, Substack, you started a newsletter, and it's a weekly newsletter, and you created a paid version of that newsletter. Um, Can you tell me why you decided to start that newsletter in the first place? 
Um, yeah, so I started the newsletter in March of 2013. So I had been um, self-employed for less than a year. Uh, I There were a lot of reasons for it at the time. I mean, one was uh, I missed editing. Um, the sense of pulling together a lot of disparate threads and, and um, you know, as opposed to just like tweeting or posting things in... Um, you know, in a day-to-day, minute-to-minute way, I I really like the pace of a lot of print media, which is weekly, monthly, quarterly, uh, and I think it's um, it's really helpful to be able to step back and draw some connections between um, all these disparate things that have been happening in the interim, and um, and that for me functioned on two levels. I mean, one being just at that point, I was a freelance writer. My work was. Um, not fetching a super high dollar amount because I was new to <laughs> to being a writer. I'd been an editor for a long time, which means I had to write a lot, mm-hmm. um, which means it was scattered all over the internet. I was writing for different places. So I liked a weekly newsletter as a way to pull it all in one place. And um, I liked a weekly newsletter as a way of pulling other things that I'd liked from the week all together in one place and kind of thematically connecting um, things as they were happening, which is something that would happen in editorial meetings when I was an editor, you know, like how do these three things that are happening in the news intersect with this thing that's happening in culture? What's like the story of this week, even though we're not calling it the overarching thematic story of this week? How are we thinking about it? And so um, that part of my brain uh, was really shaped by editing. And I think the newsletter is really satisfying to me because it lets me play editor a little bit every week. It still does. Um, that remains the case. I also was aware from being an editor that uh, it's really easy to forget about great writers. <laughs> when you're an editor, most editors are bad about keeping um, some kind of digital Rolodex of all the writers that they know and want to work with. What happens is they come up with a great idea and they sit around in a room together or they like sit in front of their email alone and they're like, hmm, like who could I find to write this thing? And I thought, well, you know, if I could make a newsletter that's good enough that a large percentage of my editors might want to subscribe to it, even if they don't open it, they will see my name in their inbox once Mm. a week. And I will be that much more top of mind when it comes time to make an assignment because editors do not assign to the very best person for the job. Usually they assign to the best person for the job who they could think of in a in Mm. a short period of time you know and who's on their radar so and I don't even mean that's just practical editors are like are busy people and I would argue like busier and more scattered than most writers so just being aware of that um was another motivating factor and um I remember having a conversation with a friend where I was like I don't know our personal newsletters over I feel like I get so many and they're not that great and like everyone kind of has one (laughs) this is like in 2013 um and I was like "Eh, I guess I'll be the like Johnny come lately to this genre sure um that is truly how I felt at the time um so yeah and then but then I also think that um you know I'm, I'm just gonna you know say that I think that consistency is also what separated my newsletter from a lot of those that started around that time, which is to say I didn't send one newsletter and then three weeks go by and I'm like, hey, it's me again. I'm really going to get good about doing this every week. And then four months go go by and I'm like, hey, I'm back. You know, I mean, I really um, I think was trained again by being an editor to create something that was consistent so that there would be an expectation, not just on my side that I would do it, um, but that there would be an expectation on the side of my subscribers. It's there every week around the same time. 
Right. I think that's hugely important and often overlooked. Like people thinking that embarking on a newsletter is like a personal missive, but if you want to make it something that is uh, a featured people, a part of people's uh, reading habits, then you have to deliver on time every week. Um, yeah. So uh, at some point you decided you decided to charge for that newsletter. Um, when did you do that, and why did you decide to do that? Uh, I decided to charge for it in. I want to say early 2015. Um, it had grown. Uh, it, it started on Tiny Letter, and um, the the folks at Mailchimp slash Tiny Letter were kind enough to raise my subscriber limit multiple times, um, mm. so that I could continue to use that platform, even though it's supposed to cap at three thousand. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, but uh, eventually it just got to the point where they were like, we can't do this anymore. Um, and so I was going to have to move to MailChimp, which is the paid version um, and with more functionality and list management tools and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that costs money. And so I was like, OK, well, I'm I'm not going to lose money on this thing. I don't need to make that much. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was a couple thousand dollars a year, but I need to make enough so that this is not you know, essentially like me writing one feature per year for free, which was not financially feasible at the time. Um, and I thought about it. Uh, I, I really, um, I didn't know anyone who, um, had the goals that I did with a newsletter and was making money off of it. I mean, I think lots of people were like, you know, that Stratechery guy, he makes so <laughs> much money. You only need, I mean, I, if I had a, like, um, you know, a penny for every time someone meant, dropped his name to me, I probably wouldn't have had to monetize the newsletter. <laughs> um, but, you know, but he's doing something really different than, than what I am doing. And I right. think like, you know, intense blogging for a small devoted group of people who are like part of an insidery community is just not what I was doing. I mean, I mean, I like the idea that like I actually love that someone might open it you know two weeks out of every six but the two weeks they open it they love it I love the idea that people who are not in my social media circles on the internet might get it and open it like I, I like the I like the fact that it is it has the um, ability to be broad so I did not want to shut it down completely and follow that stratechery model of you pay you know thousand dollars a year to get this um, and and only only at that dollar amount can you get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so so I knew that was out. Um, I also had this idea where I um, I I liked it as I liked th- I liked thinking about making money in a way that felt true to what was already good about the newsletter. So what's already good about the newsletter is that it is interesting things curated from you know a wide swath of the internet and that um, people who open it are like, oh yeah, like it's not like I'm gonna get one deep dive, it's gonna be like like fun snippets from a lot of places. And I think that um, the cla- the equivalent of that in advertising for me was like, oh yeah, like the classified ads, like where you can be weird or it can be like a low risk thing because you're advertising something that is just a side hustle for you right now or that is um, something that is just just begun or you know and it's not the kind of high stakes buy-in that like a banner ad campaign would require and also i fucking hate banner ads sorry i don't know if i'm allowed to swear on your podcast you are but like you know i mean i i was like i'm really eager like lots of people advised me yeah just get one big sponsor per week and put their logo at the top and and charge a premium for it and it's easy you only have to deal with that one sponsor 
And I think that in some ways that would have been easy, but also like, ew, like, I don't know. I don't want to put something in my newsletter that I personally hate. Like I, I have always loved looking at like the classifieds or at Craigslist. Why wouldn't I want that to be the mode of advertising that I employ? Um, and anyway, so, so I, I hit on this idea. Um, there was not software to enable that. I kind of hacked together a thing using the commerce functionality on my Squarespace website and um, some forms and then paying a super part-time assistant to help me keep track of these classified purchases. Mm. Um, that's been great. I gave like the first two weeks away to friends so that there would be examples and that I could have some testimonials about how it worked. Mm. Uh, but um, And then I also uh, launched a paid version, which um, if I had it to do over again, I probably wouldn't have done at all, <laughs> frankly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Why not? And... Uh, well, yeah. So first of all, um, I mean, this is, I, I mean, listen, if someone's listening to this podcast, they probably want to go deep on nerding about this. So feel free yeah. to like, f yeah, feel free to cut Dive it. In. But like this, <laughs> yeah, the, the real story, the real story um, is that there were, um, there were some, so there was software that existed for charging um, for a paid newsletter, but the way it interacted with MailChimp was that it had to build a brand new newsletter. Like you could add people to a new paid list, but you couldn't have a single list where people could have different statuses, paid and unpaid. Mm -hmm. um, for me, this was important because I wanted, like I said earlier, my goal is is reaching a lot of people. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to create a whole new version that was only for paying members. I wanted to make one newsletter a week with just some special features that were available to people who'd paid me. Mm -hmm. um, and the special feature in my case, or these, this is hand-drawn pie chart that I do, right. um, which I was getting paid a nominal amount to do for this website called The Hairpin for a while, right. but it wasn't, and it wasn't enough money that I felt like it was a loss to put it behind the paywall, and it's something I love doing, but it's not a piece of content I feel so precious about that I wanted everyone to see. So it was kind of in that sweet spot. Um, I was like, all right, I'm going to put these pie charts behind the paywall, and um, I'm going to make the paywall more of like a pay ledge. I want it like low. <laughs> and um, and part of that has to do with like, again, my values where like I think that, um, you know, given everything I've said about the ambition and difficulty of running a publication where you are dealing with lots of contributors, lots of original reporting, like different types of, you know, design elements, I... I choose to put my budget as a media consumer into subscribing to publications like that. And for something that is curatorial, which is at its heart what my newsletter is doing, I I don't think that that price point should be the same thing as subscribing to a year of a magazine. Like I just like on a values level, I don't. And um, and so I was like, all right, like I'm gonna I'm gonna make like a really low buy-in, um, and people can choose to pay me more if they want. So my low buy-in is five dollars a year, and people can choose. Many many people choose to pay me more. There's like a little there's an mm -hmm. options thing when you sign up to subscribe. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, again, if I had it to do over, maybe I'd, maybe I'd make it 10, but like you can subscribe to a lot of magazines for $10. Like I truly, and, and you know, if I were putting together original reporting every week, I would charge more. Mm -hmm. um, but like for me and what I'm doing, like that felt like the right market rate given what else is happening in the rest of journalism. And also in terms of like, so low it's no excuses for most, not most people. I mean, I do get letters from people saying, I, I'm cutting this because I can't do the five dollars a year and I'm like I get it like if you're writing me but mostly um mostly it was about my own value my own views of media and value it was less about what I think I can get if that makes sense mm -hmm. um 
So yeah, so I um, I found uh, a cheap kind of recurring payments processor, um, and uh, there was, and I had to like figure out how to get it to talk to um, all the list management and update stuff at Mailchimp, which was a giant headache for the first <laughs> I can year of. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and, and like eventually ended up, um, there's a woman named Jackie Boltick, who if you're listening to this podcast, that means you're a newsletter nerd and you should know her name. She's doing incredible work around, um, you know, all tech aspects of newslettering. And she, um, she's someone who helped me redesign and update my newsletter, um, both in terms of how it looks. She's great at knowing how to design for inboxes, which is a special skill set. You know, most excellent, even like, you know, UI or UX designers are going to be like not understand the limitations of like how simple things have to be to, to work across all these different email clients and different right. inboxes. So, so, um, you know, I worked with her on the design end and eventually I also worked with her. Um, she wrote me a, a program in Python that I run that connects my payments to, um, the list. And I just like, I run this little pro like, you know, bit of software um, every Friday before they do the newsletter and then the list sync and update and I send a segmented um, version. But I don't send, you know, I, it does meet my goal of I don't send, you know, whole separate content to people who are paying members. Um, and it does, I mean, it, it, do, it does what I set out for it to do. Um, mm -hmm. I just think that uh, I would probably find a different... Um, I don't know. I think that like maybe if I had it to do over again, I would have tried the classifieds first. That was the idea I was really excited about. And mm -hmm. then depending on how that went, tried to do something that was membership oriented. Um, I, I also didn't want to do like a Patreon or a thing that was more like recurring donation. Um, I didn't want to do an annual fundraising drive like NPR, which I thought about. Um, but again, I hate listening to that on NPR so you know I mean like like I really at the end of the day I don't put anything in the newsletter that I don't like and I try to not do anything with it that I don't like and that has served me served me pretty well um and along with some kind of like general values points of view about like what media should cost and what it means to um, support independent media makers so everything in it um is tailored to like my exact opinions and beliefs <laughs> which is cool i'm like excited about that now that it's all working smoothly but it was it was a good like two years getting it to the point where the technical and like management aspects of it um are not you know are not really a time-consuming part of my week right if only substack existed back then um, I mean, yeah, and I think that it's true. I think I said this to you is that if there was a mo there was a point at this journey for me, if you had emailed me and said this here's Substack, it's a thing, I would have considered it in a different way than hmm. you know by the time you launched Substack, I had already solved all these problems for myself in a way that you know, and I, I yeah, it's it's definitely um, it's definitely. Uh, it was a different era, which is hard to believe because it was not that many years. Yeah, it was like two years ago or something. Yeah, like I, I can. I, that is one of the reasons we started Substack because we wanted more people to be able to try this model. But it was just, it's too hard. It's like, it's a lot of, um, you've got to have a, a minimum requirement of technical savvy. And then even if you have that, you've got to put in a lot of time. You've got to make everything work together. You've got to ma maintain these systems. And so we decided that we just wanted to take care of everything except the hard part which is the writing itself and once you free up writers to focus on that hard part then special things can happen yeah 
Um, okay, so that's the end of my little uh, diatribe. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you, actually, you mentioned that you d- didn't want to do Patreon. I was just wondering uh, why not. Uh, I mean, I like the idea of making clear that um, you were you were paying for um, like a service that you were getting. Like, I don't know. I mean, I think that uh, first of all, there are certain requirements with Patreon and like tiers, and like part of it is just my nature that I didn't like that I would have to like like I almost didn't like the preset nature of like okay like you know you need to send an update to the people who pay at a certain level this many times. I'm like, well, the newsletter itself is the update. Um, I I like the idea that it's not patronage. Actually, um, mm. you know, you are, you are paying for a service that you get. And mm. I think that a lot of people use Patreon that way. They're like, I, I, I see the media you're making as a service to me and I want to pay for it in the same way I'd pay for a magazine subscription um but i but there is something about the framing of it that that you know was almost like this is going to sound like very off brand but not capitalist enough <laughs> i was like i do want to i do want it to be clear and and you know and a lot of it was like i did want to figure out this stuff for myself i mean i um i think that i in in order to monetize my newsletter i had to figure out you know i had to re- get really intimate with squarespace commerce i had to learn a lot about how list management works in the newsletter world. I had to open a PO box because um, mm. once I moved over and you know, you've because of ICANN regulations, you need an address on the bottom. I couldn't just have a tongue in cheek thing about like sent from my cute house in Los Angeles. I had to put an address, which means I needed a PO box. Um, and really, uh, if I look back, I had been like meaning to incorporate for years um, in terms of like really seeing my, you know, self-employed media career as like a business um but it was it was monetizing the newsletter that really made me do it because i needed to set up all these structures i mean in order to have a stripe account for the payments i needed a business bank account to get a business bank account i had to incorporate you know there's all these ways that i can um trace a lot of the things that are very helpful to me now and in running my one woman business that um, started from me having to figure out these questions about my newsletter. And so in some ways I'm actually, at the time I would have been so grateful for a tool that like I could just say it's $5 a year, I can send two versions, but essentially to the same list and get one set of stats. Like, you know, if I could have met all my criteria with a tool someone else had made, I would have grabbed it, but I I think I've seen a lot of benefit from the fact that I couldn't, frankly. Yeah, you, that would have been a huge uh, learning process. It's given you some great assets. Uh, but one one of the the most difficult things about um, starting and succeeding with a newsletter, and a lot of our a lot of the writers who come to Substack ask this is how do I grow my audience? <laughs> and it's like how do I build my audience in the first place, and then how do I grow it? So I'm, I'm wondering how you do that. Um, well, I think that um, part of my advantage uh, was being wrong about the fact that this was a played out medium and that everyone <laughs> was sick of writers having personal newsletters. Um, right. So that, that's part of it. I mean, just being an early adopter. And I think that that is also why, um, you know, Call Your Girlfriend, the podcast that I do, has such a large audience. We were We were pretty early into... Um, this wave of podcasting and so some of it is timing you know I mean some of it is like I'm sorry but if you're making a newsletter now in 2018 it's going to be harder for you than it was for me in 2013 like that's just you know 
De depending on like what kind of base you're building from that's just facts um mm -hmm. the base i was building from was a base of media folks like i mean i work in media so like that's also an unnatural advantage in a way like um people who were writing about these topics were aware of my newsletter in a way they might not have if i were doing like you know the newsletter for like the american veterinary association or something like that you know what i right, mean like right. i'm like already embedded in um, a world of people who are tasked with highlighting things that they are enjoying and experiencing. So I got a, a lot of big bumps of being featured on lists of like, hey, guess what? Newsletters, they're a thing. And, you know, here is here is this one. Um, mm. David Carr wrote about the newsletter boom in like 2014 and included my newsletter among them, among a list of those he recommended. And, um, and you know, there were some big early bumps like that. Um, mm. I... I feel very strongly that like encouraging people to um, tell their friends is is huge. Um, I have a, a little section at the end, which has always been there from day one of testimonials. Like, what do you like about this newsletter? Which is essentially just me uh, quoting people who have said nice things about me on social media. Um, yeah. I think it's really important to um, to reward people and recognize them for doing that and also to make clear that you want that to happen and having this built-in section of my newsletter makes clear that like i want you to talk about me nicely in public without me being like please share it please share it please share it right. um there's something a little uh i don't know there's something a little bit more um a little less straightforward about that right <laughs> and um it's socially yeah, permissible so, yeah, socially permissible. And I think it's also okay to ask for shares. I mean, um, one newsletter that I really love is Alicia Ramos's Girls Night In, which has um, been a huge success right out of the gate. And she um, uh, built a tool. And again, like this is why I, um, I feel like a lot of it, a, a lot of what's great about, um, you know, being in business on your own or like being out on your own with a newsletter is like, okay, like, what do I really need? She was like, what I need is a tool that like, if people refer 10 friends, they get to be in this membership tier. Mm. And, um, and it's, you know, it's a whole like referral link system that I think has worked for her very, very well. She has like cute swag that you get when you're at the membership tier. And, um, you know, I mean, I, on my perpetual to-do list is like, ask her for that software. Like, we, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I really like, I, I think that like, there's something nice about that model too. I love that. Like you can, you can earn your way into the membership tier as opposed to paying me in direct dollars for it. Like that very mm. much fits with, you know, philosophies that I have. Um, so anyway, so like, that's an idea that I love. Um, uh, and all of this is a very long wind, long winded way of saying like, you know, incentivize some public endorsements for your product. If you do not have friends in media, um, like, if you're not lucky enough to already work in media, um, find a way to get your audience to to bring in the people who they like. Because it's not always intuitive to um, to say like I'm going to forward this thing I've been enjoying to 25 other people um, or to post about it. So uh, so yeah, and I I think that um, I've the first three years or so, I mean, I, I doubled the audience for the newsletter every year, or in some cases even faster than that. And like my growth has been a lot slower in the past year because the market is just totally saturated. I mean, I would not expect it to be growing so fast when they're every journalist I know has a newsletter, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I don't feel any kind of way about that in terms of quality either, but all of that is to say that it's just, it's harder than it once was. 
Yeah, that's really interesting and really valuable advice. Um, I, I we could probably talk about newsletters for for hours, but I want to be respectful of your time. So I want to ask something related to that, which is the importance to you of being independent. And I think your newsletter probably helps somewhat with that. So yeah, how important is it to you to be independent? Um, it's so funny because uh, I would not have articulated that as a value. Um, you know, the time that I, if you flash back to me getting fired from my editing job, I wouldn't mm -hmm. have said independence is my most important thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I do really value it. And I, I value it increasingly um, in the context of the newsletter because I get to say no to people who want me to do things like charge $1,000 a head and only send it to a select group of people or people who want me to charge $50 a head and, and you know, like mm -hmm. things that I don't want to do. Um, I get to decide that like the classifieds are a good bet and I and banner ads are a bad bet even though five people have advised me banner ads and if I were working on a team and we were all voting maybe that would have been the vote so mm. you know I really love being able to make decisions that are not currently seen as um, like good bets by by the market <laughs> or by like conventional wisdom so that is like a real value to to independence that I see um, and, you know, and I, I think that the newsletter is the one thing in my in my um, self-employed career that is truly independent, though. I mean, in most cases, look, in my writing, I collaborate with editors and I mm -hmm. love that. And um, I'm independent as far as I can walk away from that relationship if it's not working, which I which I love. But at mm -hmm. the end of the day, it's a collaboration. The, the podcast I do is a collaboration with my mm -hmm. two partners in that. You know, I, I teach these pitching workshops, which are a collaboration with another friend. And I like, you know, ultimately, I think that for me, independence means choosing the best collaborators for the right projects. Um, and uh, and and being able to make choices that are really values aligned for me. And so um, I always describe that in terms of journalism with the fact that, like, say, I'm, if I were on staff somewhere and wanted to write a piece that was critical of Dove and Unilever is a big advertiser, they could just say to me, you can't write this piece that's critical of Dove. Now I can just go find a publication that where Unilever doesn't advertise and publish <laughs> it. You know, I mean, and 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 like that allows me to to be really um you know, if I think it's it's important enough to do that, I can do it. And so there's there's that level of values alignment too that I really value in independence. And that is not to say it's it's um, not difficult. I think that, you know, I mean, what everyone tells you about how hard it is to make a career as a freelancer is true. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think it's easier if you see yourself as a business and are investing in things that you own. So not just being like, how can I contribute to a bunch of things that other people, um, a, a bunch of other outlets that other people own and hope to raise my rate there um that's that's good and that's a piece of what i do and it's important um but really i think that i am uh successful successful in the sense of i don't lie awake at night worrying about money that i have that i have a like degree of stability mm -hmm. is because of the things i've been able to build on my own and independently with collaborators so like that is that is a big one you're not you're not a subject to the whims of um of like one, <laughs> one business model or like mm. one corner of the market. Mm. See yourself as a business. It's a really interesting phrase and important, I think, for the success of a journalist being independent in this way. Uh, I'm just, but a lot of journalists are kind of um, innately reluctant to accept that, or um, or they're scared of stepping into that territory. And I'm wondering how you view that, like this idea of journalists as entrepreneurs 
do you think that these two things can live well together or, or is there some sort of conflict that can never be overcome? I don't know. I mean, I, I think it depends on what kind of journalist you see yourself as. I mean, if you see yourself as someone who, you know, if you flash back to me as like a college intern, um, if, if I saw myself as someone who, you know, takes takes advice from my editors and goes out and reports the facts in a way that I was you know, taught to and comes back and files those things. And it would be hard, I think, to make the shift to, excuse me, to independence. Um, in a way, being rewarded for like opinion is, is already on a path to that because it's like, you know, that's, you're, you're monetizing, like, what is your unique, unique perspective on the world? Um, that is what it means to be an opinion writer, (laughs) um, on any level. Uh, I don't know. I think that there are, Using that word entrepreneur is is one that I only recently was like, God, I need to update my website with some kind of like douchey tech label, like serial <laughs> media entrepreneur. Um, but but like the way that I have always thought of it is like when you work for yourself, um, you know, and I, I anticipate working for myself for the foreseeable, no one is coming into your cubicle to say, hey, we're, we're starting this new project. We want to put you on it so that you can get these skills. Um, or, hey, like there's this new position that's come open within the company. Do you want to apply for it? I mean, for me, it's like uh, starting, um, starting a newsletter, figuring out how to monetize the newsletter in my own way, starting a podcast, figuring out how to monetize that and learning that business landscape, um, working on other types of independent projects. These are the ways that I've like added to my CV, as it were, and... and um, And I think that that's why I tell that Tomorrow Magazine story in the way that I do now, which is, you know, like we wanted this, we want, some of us wanted skills that we didn't have yet. And um, so we created the opportunity to showcase them. And um, it's a hard thing to do because there are, I mean, there were so many, so many weeks where I was like, oh my God, I've spent more time figuring out how to like make stripe talk to like this thing and like answering like emails about how i've like screwed up people's like credit card statements or what stuff that does not feel core to what i care about um that was not fun where i was like oh my god aren't i a reporter shouldn't i be like like working on the quality of my prose right now shouldn't i like shouldn't i be doing that um but it is ultimately i think um what is going to save me professionally that I can say like, okay, like these are the skills that I've built while out on my own. I'm not just um, hoping to continually raise my rate for doing one thing, which is reporting articles. Um, And I I really am grateful to having that first phase of my career as an editor um, to let me realize that, um, that there are a lot of different skill sets that I care about and want to cultivate, not just the written word. That's awesome. Uh, okay, I just I just want to finish quickly here, just talking about call your girlfriend your podcast, which is very popular and very great. Um, you, I, I, I kind of want to know what satisfaction do you draw from podcasting that you haven't been out to get from writing, for instance. Um, well, first of all, it's a very intimate medium. I mean, you are in people's ears; they're listening to you while they are driving to work or exercising or changing their kid's diaper or like whatever they're doing that is very integrated into their daily life. And I think that that just creates a different feeling. I mean, if you're reading an article, that's what you're doing. You're like looking at your phone or you're looking at like, you know, a book or whatever and you're reading. And I think that that is can also be an intimate and powerful experience. But I will say that the most 
average episode of Call Your Girlfriend has led to more mail and like more feedback from people and more connection than one of my best pieces of written work. Or, or you know, it's 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 shockingly like how small it's shocking how small that gap is. Um, and I think that that has a lot to do with you know the way people live and the way audio feels so intimate. I mean, it does feel like a phone call or like it does it does feel. Um, so much more personal than just reading words on a page. Um, so, so there's that. And I think that, um, you know, I'm, as I said at the very beginning, I'm interested in words and it is different, you know, in terms of how you, how you speak and how you script things and how you do an interview for audio as opposed to as for print. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's words based communication. <laughs> and I think that like, you know, that, that is, I feel I feel great about being able to kind of flex this muscle. I mean, I'm I'm in the process of hosting this other podcast that I can't talk about yet because it hasn't it's not going to be dropped for a while. But it is um, it's more heavily edited than Call Your Girlfriend is, and so I'm applying uh, the skills that I use to interview people for print, but I'm doing it for this audio project because it's going to be so edited. Whereas for Call Your Girlfriend, we don't, it's not a heavily edited podcast. It's meant to feel conversational and off the cuff. And so I kind of expect that when I ask a question or when I say something, there's a really good chance it's going to make it into the final version, which when you're interviewing someone is not the case. You know, you know that you're going to pull out the 10 best quotes or whatever and pull out the info. Um, so I don't know. I'm really, I'm really interested in learning more about the work I do in print from working on audio and um, letting the work I do in print inform audio and vice versa. So um, it's something that I recommend to all writers. And I, I know a number of them who have, who have made the leap. I think that also the landscape in terms of like how you make money in, in media is going to continue to change. And so being aware of that, that like I don't think podcasts are going to be a great revenue source forever. You know, I mean, I think everything is going to forever shift. Um, like change is the only constant in media. And so just being like, all right, well, this is another skill set I can add to the pile. And, you know, it's not, I don't have a five-year plan because who the heck knows what this industry is going to look like in five years, but I'm excited that I have like this other, um, you know, tool, tool in the belt. Yeah. Another, uh, another beachhead in your empire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, this has been awesome. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to us and everyone who's listening. Um, just wanted to give you an opportunity to say, like, where should people follow you? Where do you want them to discover you? Um, everything is at annfriedman.com. So you can find all the social stuff. You can find writing samples. You can find links to the podcast. You can sign up for the newsletter. It's all there. Great. Well, thanks very much for taking the time and have a great day. Thanks. All right. That was episode number two of the Substack podcast. Next Thursday, we're talking to Nick Kwa. He's the founder of Hot Pod and basically the most uh, well-read analyst of the podcasting industry. Um, and he's got a lot of interesting things to say about that. So next Thursday, uh, stay right here. New episode will come down your feed and hope you love it. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.